Why do we worship God? We're all here for a specific purpose, and the purpose is to gather together to worship God. So you in the pew, why do you worship God? I'm sure when I ask you that question, a number of things run through your mind. Maybe you worship because of a removal of an addiction or the worldly blessings that you enjoy or a beautiful family. There are a number of reasons why we can worship God. Whatever it is, it's been brought about because it is something that God has done for you. Even those who are not Christians have reason to worship God. The Bible says he sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. But for those of us who are in Christ, we worship from a place of redemption wherein God has saved us by the death, burial, and resurrection of his Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. So we gather to worship weekly based on what has been done for us in Christ, right? That's why we're here. Christ has saved for himself a people, the church. He set apart a people, and they're called the church. And we gather corporately to worship him. And today, we're going to be in Psalm 104. If you've read Psalm 104, then you'll realize it's very similar to Psalm 103, which our brother Jimmy preached last week. And today, as we look at Psalm 104, we're going to see five reasons to worship God. I'm just going to be forthright and clear. Here are the five reasons. Because he's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of salvation. He's the Lord of supplication. He's the Lord of desolation. And he's the Lord of glorification. Some of those words, maybe you don't know. It's fine. We'll get to it. Um, I'm, I'm a Baptist. I go to a Baptist seminary, so I had to make it sound nice. So stand with me if you're able as we read from the word of God. Psalm 104 reads, My soul bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you were very great. You were clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind and making the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He established the earth on its foundations and it will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. Amen. They will never cover the earth again. He causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. We have a good God. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate. Producing food from the earth, 
wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. The trees of the Lord flourish, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, storks make their homes in the pine trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for hyraxes. He made the moon to mark the festivals. The sun knows when to set. You bring darkness and it becomes night when all the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and they seek their food from God. The sun rises. They go back and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to labor until evening. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships move about in Leviathan, which you formed to play there. All of them wait for you to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your breath, they are created and you renew the surface of the ground. May the Lord, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they pour out smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. You can take your seat and let's pray. God, you are, you, you are so sanctified. You are so set apart. You're so separate from us. You've created all things and all things work together uh, for your glory. Where you purpose them, how you purpose them, God. And this morning we come before you trembling in ways, knowing that our God is holy and grateful that we can come before him based on the work of Christ, uh, which has been given to, which has been counted to those who trust in Christ. Thank you, God. As we work our way through this text, Father, I pray that you would be with me, that you'd give me a clear mind that would only speak the truth, knowing, God, that it is your word which is the foundation of our preaching. And we thank you for this. We thank you for your son and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I'll ask you again, why do we worship? What causes us to worship? The first thing that we see uh, in Psalm 104 here is that we worship God because he is Lord over creation. Our cry, Christian, is like the psalmist. My soul bless the Lord. 
We, sh- we should shout to him with praise. The psalmist shows us God's lordship over creation in the first four verses by exclaiming that creation serves God. So we worship him because he's the Lord over creation, and we see that because creation serves his purposes. I'm going to read those first four verses again. My soul bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind, and making the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. So here's the picture of our God. He's clothed with majesty and splendor, indicating that he's royal. And in fact, He is the king of kings. While the kings of this world are are adorned with fine things, the nicest clothes, the finest jewelry, they drive the finest vehicles, and they sit on their respective thrones, the psalmist declares that the Lord is clothed with majesty and splendor as he wraps himself in light as a person wraps himself with a robe. As I considered this verse my mind was drawn to the first chapter of John's gospel, which reads, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So when we Christians, when we, when we read Psalm 104, we can be reminded that the light described as a robe by the psalmist is an indication of God's glory. Not only that, but it's an indication of the goodness of God. Light stamps out darkness. We sang about that. As the Apostle John refers to Jesus as the light of the world, we can recall in our minds that God's glory and goodness is seen in the person of Jesus Christ, who who himself is the light of the world, who came into the world to move sinners from darkness into his marvelous light. Not only that, but creation serves God as a means by which he exclaims his existence. He sets his palace in the sky, the clouds are his chariots. He walks on the wings of the wind, and the winds are his messengers who shout out to all who experience creation, there is a God. He's alive. He's real. He's the creator who is above all things and who sustains all things by his powerful word. If that isn't enough for us to see how creation serves God, the writer of the book of Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 104. Verse 4 is quoted in Hebrews 1, 7 through 9. And what he's doing in that first chapter of Hebrews is he takes seven passages that explain uh, how Jesus is greater than all things. All created things serve our God. And here's what Hebrews 1, 7 says. And about the angels, he says, this is our verse, he makes uh, his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But listen what he says to the Son. But to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever. So the writer of Hebrews explains that the angels are just messengers. These winds are just messengers. They're created to serve God. But the Son... But the sun, his, his throne is forever. The angels serve the sun. The winds serve the sun. All creation serves the sun. 
So the psalmist writes of God's lordship over creation by showing that all creation is in submission to God, but more than just submission. The psalmist writes about the creative work of God in order for there to be a creation to serve God. And that creation exclaims the glory of God. Let me say that again. The psalmist writes about the creative work of God in order for there to even be a creation. He, he, he's writing, uh, God created everything. And that's why it's in submission to him, because he owns it all. It's his creation. Look with me at verses five through nine. He established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. These verses recall in our mind the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, but specifically uh, day 3. The creation narrative reminds us that God created everything out of nothing. Literally before there was anything, there was only God because he alone is eternal. And in his goodness, he established the earth on its foundations by his word. He spoke a word and the world was formed. And what is the word of God but Jesus Christ himself? Again, we go back to the Apostle John, where he writes of his own creation narrative in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So when we, when we Christians, when we read uh, verses 5 through 9 of Psalm 104, our minds ought to go to Jesus, who is God himself. Uh, the Apostle John wrote that all things were created through him, through the Word of God, through the Son of God. Jesus is the Word, and he is the means by which all things have been created. Apart from him, in fact, John says, apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so if that's not enough, the Apostle Paul writes of Jesus' work in creation as well. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Church, this is our God and our Savior. The preeminent one, very God of very God. He is the creator of all things, and in him our souls find their delight and rest. Can we praise him this morning? Can we just say, amen, God is good. Church, God is good. All the time. He alone is good. He alone deserves our worship. Another aspect of his creation that I want you to notice is that the water stops where he commands. 
The mountains are established by his hand. Notice verses 7 through 9. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. I've been itching to get to this part. (laughs) There's nothing outside of the control of God. The tide changes when he commands. The mountains peak where he purposes. The creation we enjoy is his. And he has blessed us with senses to enjoy them. But did you notice verse (laughs) 9? You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. The psalmist is recalling the covenant that God made to Noah. By recalling this covenant, we not only see that we worship God because he's the Lord over creation, but we worship him because he's the Lord over salvation. This is what God promised in Genesis 9. I'm reading a lot of the Bible. I like the Bible, and it helps us understand the Bible. So read, uh, listen as I read Genesis 9, beginning in verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you. And he's talking to Noah here. And every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it. And remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. Most of us know this story. Uh, The story of the great flood. That was the judgment of God on all of the earth because of their sinful hearts. Creation was seemingly out of control with their sin. In Genesis 6, 5, it actually states, the the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the earth is full of corruption, but God saw Noah, who was a righteous man. And God made a covenant with Noah. If Noah would build an ark, then God would preserve Noah, his family, and some of the animals. We all know how the story goes. Noah begins building the ark, and his neighbors are looking at him like he's crazy. They're mocking him. Uh, He's building this huge boat, and when he finishes it, he does something even crazier than building it. He starts putting animals in it. And so Noah seems pretty crazy. And as the story goes, however, Noah has proved to be right. God sends a great flood that covers the whole earth. Everything and everyone is destroyed except Noah's family, and the animals that he brought into the ark. They were covered from the wrath of God. It was outside of their control. God provided salvation for those who were in the ark. Church, that, that sounds familiar, right? They were in the ark. God's judgment is coming because we all broke and break his law continually. Though the whole creation screams of his glory and goodness and his mightiness, we break his law because of our sinful nature. So what do we do? What hope is there? Are we going to build an ark? 
No. But praise God, there is good news. You see, the ark was just a foreshadowing of the salvation to come in Christ. Noah and his family were preserved 40 days and 40 nights. And listen to this. And then they came out of the ark, they kept sinning, and eventually they died. But for those who are in Christ, the greater ark, our salvation is forevermore. It's full and complete in Jesus Christ, the righteous. Those who are saved by grace through faith have an everlasting salvation. We can weather the storm because we are in Christ. Though the winds howl and the waves crash, we who are in Christ will be held fast. Though trials come and suffering through pain, we who are in Christ have a salvation that remains. Through death, toil, guilt, and temptation, He is our God, our Lord, and our salvation. Church, we have Christ. And creation bows to Him. He alone is the creator and sustainer of all things. But if you aren't convinced, if you aren't brought to worship because God uh, is, is Lord over creation and over salvation, the psalmist has more good news for us. I'm going to read a lot more verses. Uh, verses 10 through 30. I'll try to be quick. It, we need to be reminded. He causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs, and they make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil, and bread that sustains human hearts. The trees of the Lord flourish, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nest, storks make their homes in the pine trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, and the cliffs are a refuge for the hyraxes. He made the moon to mark the festival. The sun knows when to set. You bring darkness, and it becomes night, when all the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they go back and lie in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships move about, and Leviathan, which you formed to play there. All of them wait for you to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send your breath, they are created, and you renew the surface of the ground. So these, these, these verses, of course, they're full of God's supplication. And so we worship God because he's the Lord over supplication. What does that mean? The text seems to indicate that everything that happens is purposed by God. There's nothing outside of God's dominion. The text is dealing with God's provision in all things associated with the natural world. 
Rivers flow where God directs, and they fulfill their purpose of quenching the thirst of the wild animals. God cares for his creatures. The birds are given their songs by God's goodness. And we get to hear this. They, they sing sweet songs that point to their creator. Even the foliage that we drive hours to see is a product of God's provision and dominion. Not a leaf changes color without his permission. And we can find the tallest peak at the right time of the year and look out among the land to see the vibrant colors that God has created. And he can number every leaf because he caused their existence. His dominion is unlimited. The trees of the forest, they flourish because of God's provision. And one of their purposes is providing homes for the birds. This section, uh, it, it recalls in my mind something that our Lord Jesus said during his earthly ministry. In Matthew 6, 26, he says, Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more worthy than they? Jesus is considering how God's children find themselves worrying about things in life that God provides. God provides for the birds. Won't he provide for us as well? Doesn't he care for his children? Certainly he does. Aren't you more worthy than they? Jesus knew that we were more worthy than the birds. You can find hope that God cares for his creation. He has made every creature and he provides for every creature. The psalmist is considering the natural side of God's provision and uh, providence and care. He is brought to worship because of what nature reveals about God. There's a deeper revelation of God's providence. The only way the psalmist can look out into the natural world and worship God for his creation is because he is a child of God. Though creation tells about God generally, that general knowledge would not cause us to worship God unless we're already a child of God. So, for instance, before I was a Christian, I would go hunting or riding trails with my friends. Eventually, I would find myself at the top of a mountain. As I looked at the blanket of trees covering the mountain, I would be in all of creation. I would, I would say, wow, creation, this is beautiful. It looks great. And then I would hop back on a four-wheeler and I would be off and it would never cross my mind again. But now, but now every time my family and I go to see some foliage or we go on a hike in the mountains, I'm pretty sure I read this every time. I can't help but declare what David uh, wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the works of his hands. You see, because I know God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures through the person and work of Jesus Christ, I can't help but worship him when I see his creation. And like the psalmist here in, in our psalm, in Psalm 104, I know that if God provides for all the creatures, then he will surely provide for those whom he has redeemed by the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. But his supplication goes further than just food, water, and shelter for those who are in Christ. He provides spiritually for those who are in Christ. 
and who were called according to his purpose. Here's how I would explain God's providence of supplication for those who are in Christ. Bear with me. God providentially purposes all things according to his divine knowledge and pleasure for his glory and for our good. It's a lot in one sentence. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read it again. God providentially purposes all things according to his divine knowledge and pleasure for his glory and for our good. So what do I mean when I say this? What do I, uh, what do I mean when I even say providence? Well, providence is what one theologian defines as the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. In other words, God sees to it that things happen in a certain way. But this certain way is according to his divine knowledge and pleasure. Notice what the passage says of Leviathan. It says, which you formed to play there. Or of the wine that humans drink, wine that makes human hearts glad. God takes pleasure in his creation. And he takes pleasure in his creation, enjoying all that uh, he created for them. So God finds pleasure when we enjoy creation. And so I'll say again, God providentially purposes all things according to his divine knowledge and pleasure. But he does so for two primary reasons. For his glory and for our good. And of course, uh, we see this idea throughout the scriptures, right? But the most popular place that we could probably all quote, most of us could quote, is Romans 8.28, which reads, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But he goes a little further. For those uh, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The for our good aspect of God's providence is what separates God's general providence from his special providence. So generally, he, he provides for all his creatures, but especially he provides for his people. We would all confess that God is glorified from all the acts of his providence. We would uh, all confess uh, that God is glorified that the birds have a home and that the donkeys have their thirst quenched. He, uh, he's glorified that the sun knows when to set. But what separates his general providence apart from his special providence is his people. He, set, he sets his affections and care Upon his people. He calls a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He makes alive spiritually dead people. We uh, who, are, who are made alive in Christ are being conformed to the image of Christ for the glory of Christ. In fact, the Apostle Peter writes this of the saints of God. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I want you to notice a few things about what Peter said. He's given us all things required for life and godliness. 
The requirement for life is Christ. So I would encourage you, find your rest in Jesus. The requirement for godliness is living in light of your position in Christ. And Peter says, God gave it all to us. For those who are in Christ, he has given those things to us. If you're, if, if you're a Christian this morning, meaning that you believe that all have sinned, that Christ, who is God, became a man, being born of the Virgin Mary, that Christ was crucified, died, and was buried, that Christ was raised from the dead, that Christ is now at the right hand of the Father, and that Christ will someday come for his bride, then you have been given everything required for life and godliness. So the implication is, live in light of that. All things work together for good for those who love God. It doesn't mean that God's providence in our life will be easy. It doesn't mean that once we become a child of God, that our lives are perfectly smooth and easy. I think we can all look at the course of our lives and say, amen. It hasn't been easy, not even uh, since I believed on Christ. But it does mean, here's what it means. It does mean that we are in the hands of God. It means that he loves us and that one day we will be with Christ forevermore. We will be made completely new. That's the ultimate goodness of God uh, that he works in the lives of his people. Christ is ours forevermore. And there is nothing that can take us out of God's hand. So far, we've seen uh, that we worship God because he's the Lord over creation over salvation, and over supplication. But the psalm reveals another reason why we worship God. This is a tough one. We worship God because he is the Lord over desolation. By desolation, I mean to call your attention to a few different places in the psalm. Verse 29. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. He, he's writing this in a psalm of praise. My soul blessed the Lord. And he writes about death and God's uh, control over it. In verse 32, he looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they pour out smoke. Or verse 35, may sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. This is a tough one. Earlier I said, I was ready to get to the salvation aspect. I was ready to recall the covenant that God made with Noah. I was not looking forward to this one. It's difficult. It's, It's hard to consider. Like, why would we worship God because he's the Lord over desolation? Why would that cause Christians to worship? A common theme in all of these verses that we looked at, 29, 32, and 35, is, is the power of God to give life or to take it away. Animals, humans, plant life are subject to God's sustaining uh, power, uh, to his power of sustaining life or removing life. See, verse 28 speaks to God's sustaining power. And verse 29 speaks about how life is in the hands of God. Creatures do not keep themselves alive by their own means. The very breath you're breathing right now is a gift from God. Our lives are in the hands of God himself. God turning his face away is a way of saying that his blessing is no longer on someone. We see that throughout the Old Testament. 
He, he pulled his hand away from uh, pulling his hand away or removing his hand, turning his face is, a, is just another way of removing the blessing. It, it happened to Israel when they were about to go in and take over the, the Canaanites, right? He said, if you'll go up and you'll attack these people, I'll give them to your hands. And they were like, no, I don't think so. And then God was like, well, I'm going to remove my hand of blessing from you. And then they were like, well, maybe we'll go try. And then they went and tried and they died. Like they just got killed. And then they were in the wilderness for 40 years because God turned his face away from them. He removed this, this blessing that he had given to them. The turning of his face does not mean to imply that he's no longer present. Because we know that God is omnipresent. And that just means that he's everywhere at all times. One theologian, when thinking about God turning his face away, calls it divine absence. It's a removal of the blessing of God. Not only are creatures fearful of God, but this, the psalmist writes that the earth itself is subject to God. It trembles because God is so holy, so far above the created world. Even the earth trembles. The mountains that we look at and revere because of their vast size are set aflame by the very touch of God. God is great and powerful. And those things we can look at and we can say, that's right. The, the hardest verse is verse 35. May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. And the reason why it's hard is because it's personal, right? Every one of us can think of someone in our mind. We, we all know people who are far from God. We know those who outright reject God and those who blaspheme God, but I doubt that any of us would say that we wish them to vanish from the earth or to be no more. We don't wish death for them. We want life for them. That's why we share the gospel with them. That's why we pray for them or weep for them. We long for sinners to know and believe what Christ has done. We want that. The psalmist says, may sinners be no more. He's asking for their removal. His intention is right. Like he wants God to bring about a cleansing of the unholy. He's praising God for his greatness and his sovereignty. And he asks that anything unholy be torn away from the earth. Remove them, God. As I read this verse, I wondered... If there could be another way to read and consider this verse. And while I think it's good for us, and we often do what the psalmist is doing, we, we cry, Maranatha, come Lord. What does that mean? He's coming for his bride, but he's coming to cleanse. And it's right to say that, Maranatha, come Lord. We long for you to come. We long to be with our God. We long for the unholiness to be removed from our lives. But the implication is that all unholiness would be removed. All unrighteousness would be cleansed. So it's tough. I think we can see this verse and, and long for God to vanish sinners from the earth and make the wicked no more. And we can do it in a way where, where we cry out to God, help them believe by grace, through faith, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May, may this be our prayer, 
that sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more because you, O God, have given them new life in Christ Jesus the Lord. May we all be gospel proclaimers because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The only means by which this prayer uh, is found to be true is if God gives the life and if we preach the gospel. God gives life, both natural life and supernatural life, but he also takes life from sinners and saints. He removes his blessing and he removes the wicked from the earth. He enacts his grace to sinners, but especially to his people. And those who are without him in life will be without him in death. And we worship him because he is the Lord over desolation. As he enacts his perfect justice. And it's hard. It's so difficult. There may be some in this room who don't know Christ. And to those I say, believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Find your resting place in him. But nevertheless, God be glorified because his judgments are right, pure, and holy. Not only do we worship God because he is the Lord over creation, over salvation, over supplication, and desolation, but we worship God because he is the Lord over glorification. Some of you are theologians in here, and you're thinking that I'm talking about the final act of salvation that we refer to as glorification. Now I'm talking about. I, I needed to sound right. Um, so God is, God is the Lord of that, right? He's the Lord of the final act of salvation that we call glorification, wherein we are united perfectly in Christ to sin no more. But what I'm talking about is God uh, uh, being the Lord who is to be glorified. He alone is worthy to be praised. He alone is good. That's what the psalmist attests to as he closes this psalm. Look with me beginning at verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they pour out smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. The psalmist has just attested to all these great things about God. We've seen his character, his sovereignty, his creative work, his life-giving power, his works of providence. And as he ends the near of his writing, uh, as he nears the end of his writing, he can no longer contain his love for God. No longer can he hold it back. He cries out, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his work. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice the Lord in the Lord. And he ends the psalm by saying uh, the same way he began it. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. After everything we've seen, God being Lord over creation, over salvation, over supplication, over desolation, the psalmist cries out with praise. You see, he can't contain his love and adoration for God. The very depth of his being cries out, bless the Lord. He even adds another word of praise, hallelujah, which literally means praise the Lord. Our God, 
the one true God, the one uh, displayed in this psalm, is alone worthy to be praised because of his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his love that he's given to his people. Those of us who are in Christ can worship God as the supreme Lord over all things because we have been uh, declared righteous through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So church, let us rejoice and praise the Lord because he is worthy to be praised. Let's pray. Father, you are... (laughs) You are a good God. You're sovereign over your whole creation. You created all things. They all belong to you. You, are, you alone are set apart. You alone are holy. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, we find ourselves complete uh, by his work. But uh, those of us who are without Christ, God, we pray now that that their hearts would be enlightened to the good news of the gospel, that they would believe. We pray that uh, right now. God, may you be glorified. May you be honored by your church. We pray this in the name, the matchless name, Jesus Christ. Amen.